The sun has left and forgotten me. It's dark, I cannot see. Registration is open for No Longer Virtual, coming up February 26th and 27th, 2024, in Missoula, Montana. Limited to 25 participants, you make this event meaningful. Topics for the sessions this year include managing life and work as an entrepreneur or internal innovator, finding creativity at work, using Agile, the project structure usually associated with IT work, to improve communication and outcomes in your non-tech business, and so much more. Every session is hosted by the people who attend. No keynotes. All sessions are interactive workshops to get the most out of those side conversations and leverage all of the great experience that's already in the room. But what people who attend NLV say they value the most about this summit is the relationships they build that continue to support and nurture them at work and in their career throughout the year and well into the future. Early registration is extended through January 15th, 2024, and there are a few spots left. So join us. Don't miss this opportunity. Register at elkinsconsulting.com. Your stories don't define you, but how you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker at Elkins Consulting. I want to remind my listeners that until January 31st, uh, my job interview storytelling course is available for just $49. So if you are in the market, or if you just want to be a better storyteller at work to be able to get a promotion, or just so that people know who you are and what you're really good at, don't hesitate to take advantage of this deal for $49. You can find the link at elkinsconsulting.com. Today's guest is Elaine Belson, and uh, you'll understand who she is and what she does throughout this conversation in the next 40 minutes or so. I'd like to introduce her as somebody I met through my dear friend, Mike Fritzius. We call him Fritz with an endearing quality to that name. And he often makes these great introductions. He's always thinking about who needs to know whom and who can help and support each other. So Fritz, big shout out. Thank you. I love my podcastify.me page where my potential guests go to check out my website and submit an application to be on my show. So thanks, Fritz. Elaine, welcome to Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I I love having conversations, especially with people who are also honored to hold the stories of other people in a professional capacity. And you yeah. mentioned before I hit record, exactly those words. And of course, I just started to beam. I had a big grin on my face. Um, and I'm sure over the next 40 minutes or so, people will definitely be curious to hear your podcast that you do about eight episodes every year and really dive into those stories. So before we dive into that part of the, the podcast, I'd love to have you share something about yourself that most people might not know. And our listeners know that I asked that question because I love to hear the multi-dimensions of a person. We right now so often get stuck into seeing people in a single dimension based on one interaction, whether that's on social media 
or um, a quote that we read or something that we hear from somebody else, which is even worse. So I love to know a little something about my guest that brings in that multidimensional quality of a human and their experiences. So what do you think? Do you have something you can share? Yeah, well, something that nobody would ever guess about me unless I told them, which is that I joined the Army at the age of 42. Wow. Okay, yes, that is definitely something that would surprise people. Why did you do that? Um, just from very early on, I always wanted to be part of something bigger than myself and make a bigger impact. I'm, it's just so much a part of my DNA. Um, I'm extremely passionate about it. And we went to an air show uh, near where I live in Andrews. And, um, and as I started looking around, the, the idea came to me. And I have no, no one in my family. And there's no military background. Um, but the more I started to research it, the, the more intrigued I became. And, um, and so I became a social work officer in the army. And, um, and then I um, deployed to Afghanistan. Wow. We were told when we went through uh, what is called officer basic leadership course, that's the basic for medical officers. Um, it was not a question of if, but when we would be deploying. So we knew that going into it, but it was a very rewarding experience. I mean, you learn, I'm sure anybody out there who's been in the military would say that, you know, you can learn in a, uh, what most people take a lifetime to learn in just a few years being in the military. Really yeah, rewarding experience. In terms experience. of people or about yourself, what do you mean by learn? Because that's a pretty big, broad term. Um, I, I think it, it's all around, but I would say just in a practical level, just starting on a practical level, the things that I've learned to do, right? So the discipline um, behind things and... Um, well, I'll give you an example. So um, when I was in Afghanistan, um, you know, I'm a social worker, right? And I spent four months working in an outpatient clinic. But then the medical command at a different, um, at a different post, um, they needed a what's called an EXO, an executive officer. And because their executive officer went to a forward operating base. So they put me in that position. Now, the EXO handles logistics, supplies, and procurement. Nothing I knew anything about. Wow. But what I discovered was that my social work skills, my interpersonal skills, my problem-solving skills, my determination right? For wanting to solve problems. You know, that's what mm -hmm. we are. Social workers, we're solving pro problem solvers. I, if you read the, the recommendation letter I got from my commanding officer, it would blow your socks off. I mean, basically he said that, um, you know, I, I was worked better than 99% of the people he's ever worked with. Wow. And Yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 so I discovered something about myself and 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 how I use that in my work is to to demonstrate to people that if you have certain skills it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Yeah. Right? 
you can, you can thrive, right? Mm -hmm. It's more about the tools in your toolbox than it is about experience. Yeah. It's the application of those tools that I think so many times we don't even know we have. That's one of the things I talk to um, mothers who are going back into the workforce and they don't think they have any skills. I'm like, are you kidding me? And we've heard that time and time again, but for some reason, the message hasn't uh, spread well enough or deep enough to women who are going through that. So, and and men too, who have been unemployed for a certain amount of time and they want to go do something different than what they did before. And they're like, oh, I just don't know if I can get into that. You know what was interesting about that? And I'll I'll do a little plug, um, not of my own or anything, but there's something called the Op-Ed Project. They're a nonprofit and they try to promote um, op, op, op-eds, you know, editorial writing from different voices, from new voices, not the same old, you mm-hmm. know, inside the beltway kind right. of voices, right? And, and celebrities, so, as we just talked sec- about. For our listeners, what Elaine is talking about inside the beltway is the Washington, D.C. area beltway. And I know that because I was born in Washington, D.C. and oh, we lived okay. there before we moved to Montana. It's sort of a 20, term that's used a lot across the country, but I guess yeah. if you're not really not in Montana. politics that much. I'm not in Montana. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but anyway, inside um, the Beltway, these are the people that are generally yeah. very well known celebrity status in the the public sector sphere and the think tank and all that stuff. But anyway, please, please continue. So I was taking a workshop and one of the things that, that they talked about that I have taken with me from from that point on was talking about, you know, how our experiences are not just our resume. And they were using an example just like this because of a woman who was going back into the workforce and she hadn't, quote, worked, you know, like in the mm-hmm. traditional right. sense of income know, being, producing. Uh, uh, right. Um, so. So, you know, what I used to say or what I the way I used to think about my background is, you know, I did a little bit of this and I did a little bit of that, you know, and, and then there was some time off that I took. Now, what I tell people is I have 30 years of combined experience, military, clinical, teaching, and political. Mm, mm-hmm. Right? That's what I say now because it's true. My whole life over, you can't, you can't sort of define it and say, you know, this was when I was working, this is when I wasn't, this was when I was doing. Because, because, and that is really reflective of not just the work that I've done, but the experiences that I've had. Absolutely. So in other words, in terms of how you call calling yourself an expert was something that I think particularly for women is really hard for us to do. Mm -hmm. And so that was really empowering for me from that point on, you know, I felt comfortable saying I am an expert, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, I may have taken some time off to you know, to be with my child, or I may have taken some time off to have a sewing business or whatever, but I am an expert in my field, you know, and I, I feel confident being able to say that now when I didn't before. I love that. It comes back to the whole point that we started talking about before I hit record, which is your stories don't define you, but how you tell them will. So um, your story of staying home for 12 years while your kids were growing that doesn't define you as a person or as somebody who can or cannot contribute in any situation. 
Right. So being but able to share. there's also a lot you, you take from those experiences that right. can make you just as much of an expert, right? Mm-hmm. As and, somebody and who think, may be, yeah. Right. It, it worked in a daycare to, center or, right. or school. It comes back to how you talk about what you were doing during that time, managing all the schedules, paying all the bills, managing the budget in your home and all of the things maybe volunteering at the school and all the personal relationships that you build in those situations and how you manage conflict. I mean, like there's Absolutely. so much in there. Yes. So one of the things that um, you were telling me was you loved this whole idea of your stories don't define you how you tell them. Well, what I'd love to hear from you is what, what about that resonated with you when we first started talking, gosh, it must be almost a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what was that and particularly in relation to your work? Right. So I have always said that that um that the that the way that I see my work is listening to people's stories. And I always say that I get to piece I get to see people at their best because I get to see them at their most vulnerable. And sometimes they share things with me that they have not shared with anyone else, even a spouse, right? Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of um, something. This is sort of a funny story, but um, you know the Jim, Jimmy Kimmel, right? The right mm-hmm. the, the, the late like, show uh, host, right? Yeah, show host. Thank you. Um, so when he was promoting his show for the first time, what he did was he took a desk out into New York City and he was rolling it around New York City. And I thought, this is awesome. He's going to interview everyday people. That's not what happened, obviously. It was just the right. same old, same old. But that's, you know, what you were talking about is like everybody has a story and your story is just as valuable and important and relevant as somebody who may be a household name, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, that's, I feel privileged every time somebody comes to me and tells me their story. That is mm-hmm. a privilege to me. My job feels like a privilege to me. Agreed. So I remember one of the first episodes, it might be like number 14 or something like that. in one of my early episodes of my podcast back in uh, 2018, probably I interviewed a woman who had, she was in her thirties, but when she was about 20 or 21, she had uh, attempted to take her own life and she remembered doing it and she remembered certain aspects of it. But when I asked her about when she woke up, does she remember something specific about waking up in the hospital? And over a, a matter of seconds, I saw her entire demeanor shift. It went from kind of sharing, maybe I'll share to this full on vulnerability. She softened and she said, I remember my dad was holding my hand when I woke up and my biggest fear about not succeeding was seeing my dad's disappointment on his face. I was so, that's what I saw. That's what I thought I was going to see. And he looked at me filled with so much love and relief. There was no judgment. There was no disappointment. It was all just filled with relief and love. And she hadn't remembered that moment until I gave her that opportunity. Wow. And this was yeah. years later. 
And I remember holding that and thinking, she just shared that with me, which means she's sharing it with my community of listeners. And it was Mm -hmm. such a powerful moment for me. I even asked her later, is it okay for me to publish this? Because I don't want to share something that you might not want out there. She said, oh, that was such a gift to me. I want to share that with other people. I, I did not remember that until you asked me. And that's that's when I realized how important the work I was doing was. Yes. At the time, it was just a podcast, right? I wasn't even committed to it necessarily. Mm-hmm. And I loved right. it. But it was that moment that was like, oh. Right. Well, y- you were, in essence, doing what we do. I mean, any any good therapist knows you ask a lot of questions, um, particularly for that reason. Um I always say that insight is the seed for change, right? Mm -hmm. And so without that, um, you know, reason and information alone is not going to get someone to change. And so you need to, they need to have those insights. And that's how you get them is by getting them to do the processing, by asking questions. You can't do the thinking for them. You can't do the processing of their emotions for them. Right. So um, that was a big aha moment for me. I always knew stories were important, but I hadn't realized how important the work I was doing was. Because I I am a big believer that if you have to tell people you're an expert in something, you're probably not doing it right. They need to see it. They need to experience Mm -hmm. it. And if you can't, like, I, I love to cook. I can tell people I'm a great cook, but until you've had the food that I've created, why would you believe me? But if I tell a story about the wood-burning pizza oven in my backyard and how I perfected the Neapolitan crust in Montana at high altitude, dry, arid, and what went into it, then I don't have to tell you I'm a great cook. And I feel the same about all the work we do. So to be able to um, bring those stories out in people, it made me feel like I was I was an expert without having to tell people I was an an expert in this area. So tell me where that happened for you, where you had that experience of, oh my gosh, this is really important work. I'm I'm in exactly the right place. (laughs) Oh my goodness, that goes way back. Um, Good. But I also also do a lot of storytelling myself Mm -hmm. because just like what you were alluding to, a mental picture is worth a thousand words. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so when you describe something, um, you know, and and you're creating this mental picture for people, you know, it, it's it's not only more relatable, but it, and, and engaging. Right. But it helps them to to better understand and, and visualize. Right. You mm-hmm. um, I actually went into this work uh in a in a backwards way, I guess. Or, um, so I started out as a theater major. I was actually a theater major at NYU Tisch School. Um, and after my first year, I was having second thoughts about continuing in theater. And it, it had to do with, um, we used to attend these weekly, um, I think they were weekly, maybe monthly, I can't remember now, but um, these, uh, 
I think they were there, the part of that inside the actor studio where we were students would sit and we'd get to listen to different celebrities. I mean, it was Kevin Klein and there was Roger Stone, the director. And um, one of the ones, another, an actress, her name is Jane Alexander. And she said something that really stuck with me, which is if you have any doubt in your mind about this work, don't do it because it's that hard. Mm-hmm. And um, so I took Psych 101 and I fell in love with it. And it was it was from that point on, that's that's what I always was passionate about. Never, never turned back, never looked back. So tell me about the Psych 101. Who was the teacher? What was when you think about that? Oh my class, goodness. What do you imagine? What do you think about? You know, that's an interesting. So I always imagine myself when I think back on that class is sitting in the middle of this auditorium. Just I can it's almost like I'm not even in the perspective of myself. I'm like sitting back watching myself in this auditorium. Um, And it's probably not even the auditorium that I would have. It's more like an auditorium that's like a theater auditorium right. rather than a lecture auditorium, which is kind of interesting. I never thought about it before. Just like your other guests, you know, you're, you're bringing up something that I never thought about. Um, but I, you know, I, I, and I don't know that there was this one aha moment, but I think a lot of it had to do with, I discovered that I was, that I had a, a, a talent or a skill for it. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, I think we like to do things that we're good at. Right. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's my primary income is strengths finder coaching. So yeah, <laughs> we hope so. And so you, you recognize that you had an intuitive advantage there. Exactly. Exactly. So much so that I have to say, don't do this at home folks. But by the time I reached my junior or senior year, I didn't have to study, you know, I, I, <laughs> I could write papers the night before. <laughs> well, that's what happens when we're in the pocket of our natural talents and we trust our intuitive senses is we get to that point where it does come easy for us. My dear friend, Jeff Eichler was talking about how somebody, he, he said something to somebody about what a gift she had. And she said, don't call it a gift. That, that makes it seem like somebody handed me something. And I have put a lot of work into being good at this, into doing what I do. So when you said that, yes, it is absolutely that raw talent, that raw intuition is absolutely a gift. And when you're in school, you can take full advantage of that. You don't have to work that hard necessarily to be good at it. But once you get into the clinical side of things, once you get into the other parts, it's still a gift, but what you do with it and all the work you put into being exceptional at it, that's not a gift. <laughs> so, right. Particularly I, I the it. years, you know, the years. Right. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm often quick to say that I have 30 years of experience because um, I think it is easy, particularly for women, maybe I'm biased in this way, to be minimized, Right. And sometimes it's the profession as well. I mean, our profession is very minimized, you know, mental health. Yes. Um, and so I imagine that that's what she was feeling a little bit of is being minimized. Mm-hmm. You know, no, this isn't just something that came to me. 
This is something that I have a lot of experience and I've worked a lot hard at, you know, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So it's about how you're going to become an expert or what is, how are you exceptional at what you do? That that's Mm -hmm. not a gift. I can be good at it. Right. Right. Yeah. I I think about that a lot in my strengths finder work. How do we, how do we use those natural talents to really be exceptional at something and um, manage the weaknesses that we have so that we can be exceptional in what we do well? So, and, and for me, managing that means having the right tools, whether that's technology or a desktop uh, calendar, whatever tools I need to keep me accountable, because those are at the low end of my list, and the right people in my circle delegating to the people who are really good at the things that I'm not mm-hmm. great at. So yeah, yeah I love that. Right, right. So tell me again, like, so you, you had this moment, you can look back, you said it wasn't like an aha moment you, that you look back at. And I, I've said this before in this. Uh, I think of it as this one moment, right. because it's interesting. I never really thought about it. But when you asked me, mm-hmm. what do I think about when I think about, you know, switching falling in love with psychology, I always picture that picture that that I I just described to you. Mm -hmm. But no, I don't think that it was like, oh, you know, this is what I want to do. I think it was in evolution. Yeah. And I I don't believe in light bulb moments. Uh, It's not that you go from full darkness to full light. I don't think that ever (laughs) happens because our subconscious minds are so, you know, this better than most our subconscious minds are so powerful. They are predicting things that we can't possibly consciously recognize. It's why we dream. It's how we dream, all that stuff. So I don't believe in the full dark to full light, but what I do believe in is a dimmer switch. And that's filled with individual Mm -hmm. moments that your subconscious mind and sometimes your conscious mind starts to pick up. But there are moments where you go on brighter and you notice the difference between the, the two Parts of that light goes mm-hmm. from a little darker to a little brighter, and then you see a significant change. And then there are certain aspects of our life that goes from not the brightest to absolutely the brightest. So when I think about your experience of that, that memory of sitting in a lecture hall or a theater auditorium and having that, that realization that you belong there. That's the the emotion that comes to you when you imagine yourself. You're looking down, you're observing it. This young woman going, "Oh my gosh, like I belong here. This is this is my thing." So, when was a time mm-hmm. like maybe did you go straight? If you went straight to clinical work or what you did right after college, when was the time where you you realized? I, I told you about this woman waking up and having this story, and when I realized that this storytelling gift that I have mm-hmm. could be honed and could be really, really valuable if I continue to work at it. Yeah. When was that moment for you? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because, um, I, I, my story is not a straight line. Well, very few people are. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, so, you know, I started out in theater and I, I went in psychology. I started out as mastering in uh, counseling psychology. But after a year, I got interested in politics because it was the presidential election. It was 1988. And I decided to leave graduate school and 
started working on the Hill and doing different political, you know, like internships and, and, and jobs and that. And after doing that, I found that I missed the clinical. And that's how I ended up in social work because social work marries those two, um, unlike any other mental health um, uh, field does. You know, there's policy and advocacy work, and then there's also the clinical side of things. So, and I'm very much a pragmatist. So it works, but it was, it was through experience. You know, I, I learned the hard way, unfortunately, a lot of times I have learned the hard way and I, you know, sometimes have second guessed, you know, that, I mean, I've, I've often gone with my, my passion, my emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, Even after I got my degree in social work, I stopped and I opened up a sewing business and I pursued children's book writing. So um, all of these different things that I've tried. They make you a more interesting person. And then there's, and then there's joining the army, right? Right. I mean, I think so many of us that have had what, what, one of my friends, Wendy said many years ago, probably 20 years ago to me is that she said, I'm a gypsy careerist. And at the time I thought that is such a nice phrase that describes being a generalist, that you try a lot of different things. And, um, at the time, you know, back back in the eighties and nineties, that was frowned on. That you would be the 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 word job hopper was very negatively received, and I was one as well. I've tried a lot of different things, but now I look at people like you, and and I think, oh, thank goodness you tried all these different things because that's part of what makes you really good at what you do now. The people who stay in the same industry and the same work for decades, they're really good at that one thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but try to take them out of that. And that's where the first part of our conversation comes is somebody who's been doing the same thing, even a, an at home mom for 12 or 15 or 18 years. They feel like that's all they're good at because they don't know. They haven't tried all those different things like what what you did, what I did. Right. So I love that. But what was a time and sharing you- that story, hopefully, which is the point right. of your podcast, is that anybody that. else out there who might be feeling the way I always felt like, oh, my God, I can't get my, you know, I can't, can't get myself. I, yeah, well, I can't get my shit together. Something, right? <laughs> I know. Well, I like, have. I have. And, like what your dad yeah. would say, get your shit together. <laughs> <laughs> right. So exactly. Now, so if you're, you're out doing there doing, doing that. Doing now. Right. That and you're, you're doing what you're doing now. So what what was that moment because i we have a lot of them i'm sure but what's one that comes to mind that you you're like oh i found it i've tried all these different things and you're you can't you must be like me in that you're not in denial you don't think this is like the end of your exploration but it's a really good place to be right now when did you know you found it so that's an interesting question because I always think about a duck swimming on a pond, right? I don't know why I do, um, but um, it at somewhere along the lines, I realized that you know rather than going with that immediate passion, right? There's a different kind of passion. There's that immediate passion 
Um, it, it, it's strong, but it burns out fast. Right. It's not sustainable. I have this other passion, you know, that's just steady. And I always end up going back to it, which is the, the clinical work, the psychology or social work, I would say in general, right. Um, the different aspects of it. And no matter how many times I've deviated from that and really, really deviated from that, I always come back to it. Um, and, and so it was this aha moment for me that's like, oh, this is what it feels like, you know, to just be happy with something. It doesn't have to be huge high, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's that ability to get up every day and want to go to work, mm-hmm. right? And I think I first noticed that when I was in the army because I would get up every day, get my uniform on, go to the hospital when I was in garrison, right? Working at Fort Bragg. And, and that's what I think true passion is, is when you can get up every day and look forward to what you're doing and never, I mean, sure, we have those days where we just don't feel like going to work or whatever, but right. I mean, <laughs> that you can stick with it for me, that was a huge accomplishment to find something that I could stick with. Ah, I hear that. <laughs> and all my friends are nodding right now. And <laughs> probably most of our <laughs> listeners. Right. Because so, there's so many people who are the opposite. How do, right. you, how do you take that risk? And, you know, I'm the opposite. I'm like, how do you not take that risk? Right. Well, and, and I wonder. And. And not that either I, one's right or wrong or good or bad. Right. It's just no. It's, it's just, just what you're used to. It's well, right. it's how our brains work. And I wonder. And yeah. now I'm I'm thinking about my own gypsy career and all these switches. And I have to wonder if the, it's a combination of reasons. And one is our fear of doing one thing. The reason. It, what was your resistance to? just sticking with the social work, if that was always your passion, was that a fear of getting stuck? If I do this now, I know I'm going to be doing it for a long, long time. Or is it that desire for change? I can tell you in my StrengthsFinder strengths, I have adaptability and activator. So I have to be in transition more than I'm in contentedness. Otherwise, I'm dissatisfied. I'm always on the next thing. Um, I have to actually, when I'm doing my work, cause I love my work so much, I notice that I, I have to feed my adaptability and I'll literally just take my computer. This is why I use a laptop, not a desktop and go down to the dining room table just to feed that adaptability or I'll go to a, a diner. I never or thought about that. Now you library. make me feel better about doing that. <laughs> yes. Cause I'll well, go you have to, to feed the it. kitchen, to the living room, to my office, yeah. to my bedroom. <laughs> exactly. So I have to wonder, you know, is it both, is it one or the other? Because I, a, a story just popped into my head that I know is going to trigger a story for you. When my husband and I met after just a few months, not even a few months, it's probably two months of dating. And he's, he told me he loved me. And I had this moment where I did not say it back to him. I knew I was feeling it, but I didn't want to say it back to him. And I realized why. And I said it in the moment. And I think, how did I know this at 25? Because I I don't think of myself as wise, and I certainly didn't then. But I remember this moment of saying, I can't say that to you right now because that means it's for real. Mm -hmm. And I was a three-date woman. I was like, three dates and I'm done. I did not want to get tied down. I didn't want to have kids, never wanted to get married. 
And I knew if I said, I love you, that was it. And I have to wonder if that's also part of why you and I are resistant Mm -hmm. to, or were resistant in our younger years to falling into the one thing that we knew we were going to love. You know, it reminds me of something that I used to, it was almost like a principle of mine. I would never promise anybody anything unless I was absolutely sure that I could deliver, right? For the longest time. Like a fear of commitment almost. Well, fear of disappointing people, you know? Um, For me, the drive, it really does go back to what I said. I used to think about, you know, when I would think about, you know, the, the house with the white picket fence, that was always the sort of image I got. Oh, no, that's not for me. I want to I want big change. I want to make a huge difference. Right. That's just something that has always been a drive for me. And I'm not satisfied unless, you know, no matter how many people I'm helping, I want to help more people. I want to make it that making that making a difference is just like part of my DNA. I don't I can't explain it. I do. I do believe that I'm an empath. Mm-hmm. Um, so it that's that's what always drove me was that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that desire to do. And so. I and also think that knowing, I suffer from. I, I used to say, you know, I have a lot of interests. That's the way I would explain it. I have a lot of interests, and so I suffer <laughs> suffer from having a lot of interests. And sometimes you have to know what's a hobby and what's a career, oh. right? Tell me about it. <laughs> yes. I and think I think, you know, like you said, great. growing up, I mean, you grew up at a time where you didn't have the internet. So, you know, there wasn't this gig economy where you could dabble in this and dabble in that. So, right. Right. Although we did, we still did. Yeah. We just, well, I, I would think of them as careers. I'm like, I'm going to go oh. do this now. Right. <laughs> That's funny. I'm going to be a children's book writer. I'm going to be a seamstress and have my own sewing business. All these different things that I tried. That's I mean, so when I try them, I mean, I go all out. I flew to California to attend a children's book writing conference. <clears throat> yeah. I went to New York City and attended this huge, you know, convention uh, for, you know, fabric designers. I mean, yeah. Oh, yes. You go all in. I love it. I go all in. Well, it just goes along with that passion. Yeah. And, but, and then recognizing when, when it's time to do something else, I think um, that's, that's the, the gift for lack of a better word that, that we have had in our lives is that ability to set it aside because a lot of people um, don't realizing that, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Right. And, and that this isn't, this isn't the end. I'm, I'm on to the next thing and, and that's okay. I, I think mm. being okay with it is just the hardest yeah. part for women. Our ages. With the gig economy, it really mm. makes it possible. And that's what I love. Cause I cannot do one thing. I can't. <laughs> so I have my private practice, but on the side, you know, I've been doing, um, you know, uh, like op-ed writing, Right. And uh, podcasting and um, um, what's the other thing? Oh, I want to now I'm trying to break into public speaking. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing we talked about during our first conversation. Well, let's let's bring this full circle 
um, because you're mentioning some of the other side work, or I talk about my primary income is my strengths finder coaching and, and storytelling coaching. And then secondary income is keynote speaking. And I'm an author. I have a book out and podcasting. So uh, to turn this around and make sure that our listeners get a chance to really know what you do and how to support you, um, what what is something that you're working on now that our listeners can find you and support you and learn more about your obvious insightful mm -hmm. strategies in doing the work that you do? Right. So I'm working with a marketing coach right now. His name is Brad Long, by the way, if anybody is looking for some direction, um, because I, I know a lot of people who try to break into this work, uh, especially with all the noise out there, you can work really hard and just be spinning your wheels. And uh, so anyway, what I am working on setting up is a live um, call in YouTube broadcast because basically I want to do what I do every day, one-on-one -on -one or with couples or families um, with a, a larger audience because there's just so many people out there that I know are struggling. Our country is struggling. And I, if I could, Frinkle pixie dust and make everybody see and know what I know I would. And that's kind of, you know, why I want to do that. And I think that for me, that's the best way of doing it because it, it fits in with what I do every day. So you what know, would people be the calling format? in asking question, a call in show okay. basically mm -hmm. um, on YouTube is what we're, what we're designing right now. Um, and um, you can go to www.elaine.com, -E -E everything there, the podcasts that I've done, the, the blog articles that I've written, um, everything will be there. And including awesome. when I start, uh, which is going to be very soon, I'm going to start. Um, in fact, I'm looking for people to call in to my show. Ah. So <laughs> yes. um, it's going to be called um, Ask Me Anything. Uh, with therapist Elaine Belson. So that sounds awesome. Wow. What, mm -hmm. what a, a gift for listeners, for people who need to share something about themselves and uh, learn something about themselves and yeah. um, can teach and others. Therapy to the masses, mm -hmm. you know, absolutely. I think a lot of people um, wow. are afraid of it, obviously. And this is mm -hmm. a way for them to get a feel for what it's like. Yeah, that makes so much sense. One of my friends, um, Annette Taylor, offered to be a guinea pig and be strengths finder coached by me on one of my podcast episodes. And it was great. A lot of people were like, oh, I didn't know that that's what it would be like. So I think that's a great format. And it might make people more comfortable to actually take that next step and, and look for a counselor. So for our listeners, no need to pause and go back and listen to the web address because all of this information, how to reach Elaine and all of her links will be on my uh, website, elkinsconsulting.com on the blog post associated with this podcast episode. Elaine, this has been such a treat. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will. Thank you, Sarah. Listeners, now it's your turn. I would love to hear how this episode landed for you. 
What did you hear in it that made you realize something about yourself? Maybe that you're a gypsy careerist and you haven't given yourself enough credit for all of the ways that those iterations of your career have made you who you are today. I would love to hear about that. Thank you so much for listening. I'm looking forward to hearing your comments and knowing that your stories matter. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you just smile.